Hi, you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where faith's deepest values meet the world's hardest questions. This season, we'll be discussing 14 great moral leaders, men and women who changed the world. Our discussions will be guided by David and Colin's new book, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, available everywhere October 16th. Welcome to Kingdom Ethics. I'm Jeremy Hall, and with me as always is Dr. David Gushy and guest Colin Holtz. And today we're going to be discussing Abraham Lincoln as part of a special two-part series, a sort of tale of two presidents. We'll first look at Abraham Lincoln and then jump in time and location to apartheid South Africa to talk about Nelson Mandela. So first, Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. Born February 12th, 1809, he'll become the president in 1861, just in time for the Civil War. He's known best for his service as a wartime president, the Gettysburg Address, and the Emancipation Proclamation. But before his time as president, Lincoln tried his hand at many vocational options. We'll join the conversation there. We're glad you're here. Welcome to Kingdom Ethics. He was a lawyer, he worked as a shop clerk, might have run a post office. Postmaster. Mm-hmm. Served Surveyor. in a militia. Surveyor. He did almost everything, none of it well, including running for political office. He was pretty atrocious at that until suddenly his peers decided that from an array of accomplished and impressive individuals, they would, for some reason, nominate Abraham Lincoln as the Republican presidential candidate. And that's when his career took off. Did Lincoln want to be the Republican candidate? Did he seek out this leadership? I think by the late 1850s, he was he was at the place where, although he was challenged by the incredible situation that the country was facing, he was open to that to that role and that responsibility. But I don't think he woke up one day in 1840 saying, "I'd like to be president sometime." He seemed to have two goals for his entire life. One was to escape bondage to the land that he felt his father lived in. So he wanted out of that life, that hard scrabble farming life. His second goal was to get elected to office. I'm not sure that he then thought, oh, I'm going to be president of the United States, but he thought I could be in the legislature, did that successfully. I could be in the House of Representatives, did that for a little while, ran twice for Senate and lost. So I bet at that point he thought, well, my political career is mostly over, but By the time 1860 rolled around, there was enough movement and enough turmoil in American politics that anything was on the table. The the party that nominated him, the Republican Party, had not existed a number of years before, and it was not the party to which he had devoted most of his life. I hadn't thought of this before. This is a, a new idea for Jeremy. Abraham Lincoln is a man transitioning between two worlds. He's moving from rural to urban, from subsistence, scraping out a living, to industrialization, 
from survival to reason in politics and law. And this will sort of be a characteristic of his presidency as well as the nation goes to war with itself and the world starts to shift and we see uh, modern warfare for the first time on the global stage. And we see the way that the American economy starts to turn from the old world to the new. We know that, I mean, his earliest political agenda was already that Whig agenda of modernizing America, building an infrastructure, strengthening the state role in uh, advancing the American economy, building railroads, uh, a central bank uh, that could help to finance industrial expansion. He was not romantic about rural farm America. So he was he was not the only one who had this vision of the modernization of America. But then, of course, the, the other transition was he became the first Republican presidential candidate, the end of an era, the, the tensions, the sectional tensions, north-south, just contributed to crushing a political party that had been around since the beginning and creating a new one. And then I, I think you might say that his presidency also witnessed enormous transitions and transitions within himself as well. When most people think about the Lincoln presidency, they think about the war and the Emancipation Proclamation. Are there leadership lessons to be drawn from the less explosive moments in Lincoln's career? I would say that most historians seem to think that that he was not quite prepared for office when he took office. He hoped that his conciliatory words toward the South would be trusted and would help forestall secession, and that was a miserable failure. When the war started, he had very little feel for how to be a wartime president. He didn't have very successful relationships with his generals. Uh, there were a lot of people thinking he was a yokel who had no idea what he was doing, accidental president. I mean, what was it? He got 40%, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, we want to talk about a moment in which the American regime, the United States of America, and the Electoral College, and and you know the whole way we have run our country, our constitutional system, could have cracked up then and never recovered. Um, and he would have been the ultimate failed president, like the, maybe the last president of of what we know of as the United States of America. I, I think one of the the key lessons of Lincoln's story is he failed a lot. He failed far more than he succeeded for the better part of his life. And even in his early days as president, people thought he was mainly a big fail as president. But he never gave up, and he grew from his failures. And he wasn't afraid to examine his failures and to see what he could learn from them. I think that's a leadership lesson. And he had experienced so much personal tragedy in his life and continued to experience personal tragedy in office. He lost a young son, and... By the time he had lost a mother, he had lost children, political setback, a career setback seemed nothing in comparison. I also think it helped him empathize with the parents and the families who were losing sons and brothers and fathers in this great war. It helped him see suffering and turmoil and craft this astonishing providential theology that held that all of this nightmarish loss 
had some greater purpose, and he eventually landed the idea that that greater purpose was the elimination of slavery. Is there a process that gets him there, or is he early on ready for the emancipation? Well, it was definitely a process. When he took office, he explicitly promised not to push for any any um, mandatory change in the situation of slave ownership in the South. Um, you know, elect me and I will leave things just as they are. And uh, as the war went on, I think most historians would agree that the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, 1863 was a highly limited tactical wartime measure. The idea was that slaves were to be emancipated in the territory of the enemy, not even in the territory of the border states. You know, basically it was to say to the slaves, if you can get out and you can get to to our troops, uh, we will shelter you. And eventually some of these slaves were then put to work uh, in the Union military. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it was a way to weaken the enemy. But the symbolism certainly for African-Americans, that some slaves were going to be freed was overwhelmingly meaningful. And then eventually, eventually he worked his way to the idea that, that all slaves must be freed, that this is the deeper meaning of the war. But that took him a long time to get there. I, I think that uh, what makes him somebody I, I've always wanted to have my students read about and, and to have in this book is the way he worked this out theologically. He was a public theologian in the office of the presidency who happened to be very, very skeptical about traditional theology of, of any type. It's Alan uh, Guelzo's book, A Redeemer President, that has been most influential for me in working through the fragments of evidence of what theology he was developing. He took the darkest parts of yeah. Calvinism in yeah. a way... And kept uh, kept not a loving, graceful God, yeah. not a kind God. He did keep a sense of God's providence. So he married this fatalistic inevitability that you get in some forms of Calvinism. And he, he grew up in a very strict Calvinist church with a deep belief in God's providence. And that allowed him to say, we are all simply acting out God's plan. And there has to be some deeper reason for all of this bloodshed. And the deeper reason turned out to be the bloodletting for 250 years of slavery. Most Americans know Lincoln for the Gettysburg Address. Gettysburg Address. The best speech he ever gave might be his second inaugural. I remember back when I wanted to be a speechwriter, I wanted to study the second inaugural, not the Gettysburg Address. Second inaugural, first of all, sets a amazing precedent in American history for second inaugural addresses of presidents, just raise the bar. It's equally short, but it is a work of theology as much as a political manifesto. He's not spelling out particular policies. He's listing off a understanding for what the nation is enduring and why. And it's astonishing. That's really fascinating. It's also interesting to hear that about you. So it's fall 1864. Now, I guess by the time you're doing the second inaugural, it's March 1865. Mm-hmm. So the war is almost over. So many hundreds of thousands of people have died. Hundreds of thousands more have been maimed, ruined for life. What is the meaning of this war? The meaning is justice, judgment. 
It's not what either side thought it was. Nobody's hands are clean. Nobody gets to say God was on our side. That's actually very important because what he's saying is the judgment falls on all of us. And the judgment is fundamentally for creating a society in which slavery got written into the Constitution. We knew it was wrong even then, but we allowed it. And we had to pay this ultimate price in blood to, um, to get rid of it. And that helps to lead to the conclusion that the right outcome at the end of the war is the total ending of slavery, the, uh, the, the total ending of slavery. And that is finally what happens with 13th Amendment. It was a, a theological move as much as anything. That was not his career. That was the last three years of his life. And we, yeah. if those three years had never happened, we would remember him very differently. Right. How was he received at the time? What did people think of this yokel president? He's a lightweight. He's a yokel from out in the sticks. Comes in with his country mannerisms. Doesn't know what he's doing. Suits don't look right. Got that long, bony body uh, and the scruffy-looking beard. And he, he's um, kind of questionable because he, he wasn't much of a Christian. Uh, wasn't in church. The rumors were that he was actually agnostic or atheist, and we say from the evidence that it looks like he was at least agnostic earlier in his life. He he wrote a skeptical kind of refutations of Christianity book when he was a young man, and his, his friends pleaded with him to do away with it, that it wouldn't help him, and they, it disappeared. It went away. He did not like fundamentalist religion. He used to make fun of preachers. He, of course, was immediately hated by by his adversaries on on the southern side, right? Um, had plenty of adversaries on the northern side, too. On the slavery front, he was seen as a moderate in a moment where moderation was not what we're doing. I mean, you're either, at, you're either against it or you're for it. He was trying to navigate a middle way at a time when that was increasingly impossible. When he died, I mean, he had successfully presided over the, the winning of the Civil War, and he was, he was appreciated for that. But from the from the hardline Southern perspective, uh, he was the enemy, and so it's interesting. Uh, most historians seem to think that the circumstances of his death cemented a kind of martyr president image. You know, he was killed on Good Friday. Of course, he wasn't in church. He was at he was at Forge Theater watching some kind of body play. Right? At the time, like quite the opposite of church. We would it would be as <laughs> right. if someone was shot today in a nightclub, three a.m. Yeah. You're not supposed to be. You're not supposed to be there on Good Friday evening, but he was. But and then he he dies the next morning, and you know the, the nation is mourning over Easter. What ended up happening afterwards is that the Civil War was explained away as either Northern aggression or a cure for Southern backwardness. So it was a, there was a sectarian rationale. It oh, if only those people hadn't blank, we wouldn't have had a war. Or it turned into this myth of the blue and the gray of people fighting for their traditions of an, an America that was in the midst of great shifts and needed to rediscover its identity as a united nation and not disparate states. And slavery was just sort of written out, forgotten, left out of that story. And so you could have these meetups of Civil War veterans that didn't talk about slavery as a reason they were fighting. And honestly, nothing about what I just said 
sounds out of place in 2018. Mm. We are still fighting over whether it was Southern backwardness or Northern aggression or whether slavery was actually at the heart of of the, the Civil War. If Lincoln had lived, I think he might have driven home that message well enough that our national understanding of what the Civil War represented would have been forever changed and there would it would have become less controversial over the following hundred years. Jennifer McBride, who teaches at McCormick Seminary, her major book is on um, Bonhoeffer's public theology. And one central claim in that book, I think it's called The Church for the World, I don't... But anyway, one major claim in that book is that Bonhoeffer saw that Christian public theology needs to lead with repentance. And I think that's just a great insight. When you lead with repentance for, like, we're for the church's failings, for the nation's failings, and you own that, it's not finger-pointing, you bad people. It's, we messed up, and now we must do better. I think that uh, white Southern shame over racism, slavery, all the crimes of slavery in the slave days, became a toxic force in our culture. It was something like this. We will not face this because we feel accused every day. And so we will instead tell the whole story of the South differently so that we don't have to, we don't have to face this. But what, what Lincoln had arrived at by 1864, 1865 was, this is our shame. We all did this. And so if we all can confess this, we all can move forward together. What is the legacy of Abraham Lincoln? And what might Lincoln have to say to the political landscape of 2018? Go. Well, it was not a foregone conclusion that there would be a United States of America after the Civil War. He did save the Union. I wish I could say that he charted a path in kind of public theology of confession and repentance and shared responsibility that we all took up, but we didn't. He was ahead of his time, and in a sense, nobody ever really matched that, I don't think. I think he'd look and say, y'all are still fighting about this? He wouldn't say y'all, but he's from Illinois. <laughs> uh -huh. But he had offered what he thought was a common ground that people couldn't unite around a, a way of uh, understanding and articulating the experience that the country had been through. I think he'd be flabbergasted at the idea of Confederate memorials in Arizona. He'd be flabbergasted at the idea that there's a state called Arizona. <laughs> he would be looking at this and saying, you missed the great lesson. And I think he'd be disappointed because for him, a lot of the bloodletting was not just to win a war, not just to liberate people, and I don't want to minimize that, but it was to provoke a spiritual conversion in the heart of every single citizen in the heart of a nation and turn it from a bad path. And I think he'd be disappointed that that never happened. We haven't talked much about the development of Lincoln as a thinker. He had a horrible limited education, formal education, but he was a voracious reader and self-taught one of the most brilliant writers, speakers, and thinkers in American presidential history. We needed somebody of that vision, depth, intellect, thoughtfulness as president during that time. 
So some leadership lessons from page 57 of Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. It's a that's, lovely book. It, that's the advanced reading copy. It's oh, probably not going to be 57. Try again. <laughs> leadership lessons from Moral Leadership for a Divided Age on Abraham Lincoln. Character is formed in suffering and struggle. Personal ambition can drive us to great things. Lincoln was indeed ambitious. Convictions must be allowed to grow. He didn't end up where he started, but he grew. Theology has a role in public life. Be resilient, never give up, and learn from mistakes. And leadership always provokes criticism. All right, Colin, wrap it up for us. What did we miss today? There are two small things that we haven't touched on that I do think are important. The first is Lincoln suffered from what today we might call depression, yeah. a clinical depression. He, he had, in the terms of the time, a melancholic nature. And I think that gives hope to a lot of people who suffer with mental illness, be it severe or chronic, something they deal with every day, that it doesn't have to limit them. And in Lincoln's case, it actually perhaps helped give him insight into the suffering of an entire nation. The second thing I'd say, and it might go along with that, is his integrity. We are so used to politicians heaping up empty phrases about their belief in God and their trust in salvation. We almost don't take any of them seriously, to the point where some may be quite sincere, but we assume that all of them are lying. Lincoln may not have been an Orthodox Christian, but he never truly lied about being an Orthodox Christian. It would have been very easy for him to throw out those phrases. He'd been reading the Bible his entire life. He knew how to talk the talk, but he refused and he didn't. And so when he did offer theological reflections, they were much more meaningful. David, Colin, thank you. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. If you would like more information about the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University, please visit us online at ctpl.mercer.edu. If you'd like to know more about the work and ministries of the voices you heard today, you can find us at our respective websites, revjeremyhall.com, davidpgushy.com, and colindholtz.com. If you'd like more information on great moral leaders, pre-order David and Colin's book, available October 16th of 2018, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, 14 People Who Dared to Change the World. Thank you. We'll see you next time. That's Mabel. Mabel, why are you so upset? Someone's still mad that Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. Aren't you, little dog? Yeah, me too.